Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzschreiber. On today's show, foreign surveillance and intelligence. While most Amer- uh, innocent Americans probably don't like getting spied on, their thoughts about how we spy on foreigners might be different. A lot of people say, look, we live in dangerous times and we need to have foreign intelligence and we need to spy on other countries in order to stay safe. But what happens when Americans are caught up in that dragnet and is foreign surveillance actually just foreign when the Internet is borderless and cross-Atlantic data flows are happening seamlessly all the time? Joining me to discuss this topic are two guests, Jake Laparouk, Privacy Fellow at the Constitution Project. Jake, thanks for joining. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And Tech Freedom Zone, Ash Kazarian, Legal Fellow. Ash, thanks for joining. Thank you. I'm really excited to hear you guys explain this. (laughs) So, uh, Jake, you've been on the show before, and we've talked about the issue of foreign surveillance and how, after 9-11, the wall between national security and local law enforcement has kind of been eroded, and things that might have been associated just with terrorism are used in cases involving drugs or maybe arson or things like that. So just briefly, uh, for listeners who didn't hear that episode, can you summarize what you mean by a chain-link fence between federal enforcement and local law enforcement and how we've really seen the wall between these two things go away after 9-11. Right. So before 9-11, intelligence agencies were very much separated in uh, a process called stovepiping. Basically, the concept was to stop any agency from becoming too powerful and also to keep the missions very separate, to keep what the FBI was doing away from what the CIA was doing, away from what the NSA was doing. Um, After 9-11, the 9-11 commission concluded that that was not a great system, that that helped us from sort of connecting the dots and seeing how certain intelligence items were related. So they effectively um, took down the wall. And since then, there's been a big priority on information sharing and making sure that all these intelligence agencies have um, access to foreign intelligence information all the time without restriction. The big concern is that is that some of these agencies, like the FBI, have dual missions with law enforcement, and they also often share information a lot with law enforcement. So we've seen the wall coming down, not really just to aid um, intelligence operations, but actually in a manner that has sort of superpowered law enforcement with this foreign intelligence surveillance that they were never really intended to have. The idea of the sort of the chain link fence metaphor is, well, don't put the wall back up, let the intelligence agencies keep sharing their information, but have some sort of legal restriction, you know, a legal chain link fence that stops law enforcement from just running across the line and using this foreign intelligence when it doesn't really have business um, having that superpower tool. Yeah, in general, I think a lot of Americans could get behind the idea that their local sheriff's department should not have all of the tools and authority and you know power that the NSA has. And if there's really no restriction on how this information is shared, there's not much of a difference. And then you get that that gets to the whole militarization of the police idea as well. It's not even that. Uh, it's understandable that after 9-11, um, everyone felt justified to create as much uh, information sharing as possible to achieve anti-terrorist goals that were, you know, priority back then. But right now we're living in a much more, stab- you know, st- we're more stabilized. And um, the fact that federal agencies can basically run rogue and not even share the process they're going through and there's no transparency there's no due process to begin with in a lot of these cases for example the what was the name of a drug agency i'm just blinking right the drug enforcement agency dea DEA. yes dea has been going rogue for a while and just justifying it and using all this data collected 
well, with NSA and FBI. Yeah, and of course, uh, there are a lot of people who'd say if you want to do certain surveillance activities for the purposes of counterterrorism, we're comfortable with that. But it's a different question when those same exact authorities are used for non-terrorism cases. Now, just to define some jargon here, we are talking about foreign surveillance that is conducted under authority given to the government under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. Now, That is some lovely DC jargon that people outside of the privacy and tech community probably have never heard of, uh, but it really is uh, kind of a household name for us in this space. But uh, just so listeners know what we're talking about, what is Section 702? It's something they'll definitely be reading in the papers uh, as we approach the expiration. So Section 702, it's it's really the main um, congressionally provided authority for the government to engage in foreign intelligence surveillance of communications. Um, the concept behind the law is that while well, the government um, should be able to, with somewhat looser restrictions, monitor um, non-Americans who are communicating outside the U.S. That's the designation for targets. It's very broad, and it compels the and it, it permits the government to compel companies um, without individualized court orders relating to the targets to hand over their communications if they have them. So. It might be an American company like Google or Yahoo that's holding on to these communications or routing them, but um, it can only target non-Americans in terms of what the government is saying, hey, you have to hand this over. Uh, the law was enacted in 2008 sort of to replace the president's um, the terrorist surveillance program, um, which was very controversial not only in terms of what it covered, which was a little broader than 702, but because it just sort of came into existence on its own under executive authority without congressional authorization. Congress said, well, we sort of agree with the concept that you should have the power to monitor these type of foreign targets, but we're going to put some limits on it. So they created Section 702. Um, The law, like several other somewhat controversial surveillance laws, kicks in with an expiration date. It was reauthorized in 2012. And it's set to expire again at the end of this year, 2017. Yeah, that's part of why uh, the debate is heating up, because there is an expiration. And we saw with the Section 215 program, which was the original Snowden leak for listeners who are trying to remember all this stuff. I mean, back in June of 2013, it was revealed that Verizon, AT&T, the big telecom companies in in the United States, basically all of those calls, the metadata from those calls was being just vacuumed up indiscriminately by the United States government. And a majority in Congress, the president, a lot of people agreed, this is ridiculous. You cannot prove that this was an effective surveillance tool, so we're going to shut it down. And now when the government needs that metadata, they go to the companies with probable cause. Now, we're talking about a very different program here, though. And the arguments that it's completely illegitimate needs to be shut down, those are seen as extreme. What we're really talking about in terms of what's realistic, given a Republican president, Republican Congress, is how do you reform this? And one of the big issues is... Americans getting caught up in the dragnet. So, of course, there's huge issues with foreign surveillance as well. But in terms of convincing a congressman whose constituents are mostly American citizens, how do you get them to see how this affects Americans? And to what extent is the information that gets vacuumed up in Section 702 being used for domestic purposes on American citizens? Right. And this is, I think, a really important thing that we need to focus on for Section 702 when we talk about this law. Because on its face, this is a law that targets um, non-Americans outside the U.S. But of course, we we live in a, a world of global communications. Just because it's targeting those people doesn't mean that Americans aren't swept up. I mean, I'm sure pretty much you know all your listeners talk to some non-Americans, people outside the U.S. 
those are theoretically all conversations that could be swept up in this dragnet under 702. Um, this is all the more likely because the standards for targeting are really broad. These don't have to be bad guys, suspected terrorists, um, you know, foreign agents. They can just be anyone who monitoring them could relate to the conduct of U.S. foreign affairs. So if you're a non-U.S. person who engages in discussion of U.S. policy, goes to um, global protests, you know, is an academic that talks about foreign affairs, things like that, that theoretically could um, let you become a target under Section 702. And any American who talks to people like that, people who are not, you know, bad guys, could be swept up into the net whenever they're communicating. And it's not only that. So not only if you talk about foreign affairs, so foreign affairs is not really defined that well. It's very vague. So let's say protesters in Russia who are protesting Russian government, who is now pretty cozy with American government, um, Russia and U.S. can exchange that, um, you know, that information they swept up. And the same happened uh, and the same concerns were about uh, the uprising in Turkey um, when, you know, people were communicating through Twitter and they were connecting to Americans who were helping them um, organize. And uh, all of these questions come also, by the way, if you just talk about a target in your communication. Did you did you mention that? No. no. So, yeah, if you talk about a target in um, your communication, you can also be covered and swept up your, your whole information. And unlike 215, 702 captures what the communication is about. 215 was more about metadata, who you called, how long was the call, you know, that kind of information. Yeah. Here, it's it's much more detailed. It's much more scary. Yeah, the content is certainly more revealing in some cases than just the who you called and wh how long you called them. We're talking about actually having the content of a message or a call. And you bring up an interesting point, Ash, about protests overseas, because this is a constant piece of debate in, in tech policy and surveillance. You know, there's this attitude in the United States people have a lot of time that I have nothing to hide, right? My government, for the most part, adheres to these things, and I'm not worried about the government targeting me for dissidents. But when we're talking about people in Turkey, people in Russia living in very different environments, what we do here impacts those people. And the United States, the State Department has a mission to spread democracy and have good relationships with other countries. And doesn't it undermine our efforts when you're sharing information with governments that repress dissent or that shut down journalists? I mean, and these are things that Americans might not be worried about happening to them, but the U.S. policy can lead to that happening to other people in other countries. Yeah, I don't want to steer us into foreign relations discussion, but Saudi Arabia is a partner of U.S. that has been really bad on human rights. Um, so that's one of the concerns you can also bring up. And going back to just uh, you, U.S. citizens saying, oh, I, I believe my government, why should I be concerned about it? When you have a change in government and you have a change in federal agencies and you don't know, you have no transparency whatsoever on what they're doing and how they're doing it without any due process, if you you know really look at on face um, what it is, there is no due process. Um, you start questioning yourself if you trust the government that much. So Tech Freedom, the Constitution Project, other organizations have long been asking for some type of answer on the question of how are Americans being impacted by this program? Have we gotten a number? Have we gotten an idea of how you get swept up in the dragnet? Have we gotten any information? What is the state of our efforts here? We do not know how many Americans are swept up in this dragnet. This is something that um, civil society and civil rights and civil liberties advocates have been asking for years. 
but it hasn't been provided. Um, we nearly got it included as a mandatory requirement in the USA Freedom Act, but um, you know, during the process of just debating and compromising to get that law enacted, um, we unfortunately lost that one. And that was the law that actually shut down that program I talked about earlier, the indiscriminate bulk collection of uh, metadata. Yes. Um, the intelligence community uh, last December issued a statement saying that they would soon be giving um, a number, an estimate of U.S. persons affected by 702. It's not clear exactly what that number is going to entail. Some of these things, depending on you know the type of uh, communication, whether it's phone or internet, can be harder to determine for sure if it's an American. Um, but they did say that that would be coming uh, soon. I would hope that before we start having hearings on Section 702, that's a number they can provide. I would imagine that there's going to be a lot of members of Congress who will be very uh, frustrated if members of the intelligence community come to say, we want to reauthorize this authority and can't give a number of how many Americans are affected. So in terms of reforms beyond that, because of course, transparency is is generally seen as not controversial. So when we're talking about how do we reform the program and get to a place that is more consistent with the Constitution and civil liberties and human rights, transparency is one thing, and that certainly helps to know more about this. But in terms of actually changing the way the program operates and really yeah, passing laws through Congress that change things. Um, what does reform look like? I mean, on one end, you have a lot of people in the intelligence community saying, reauthorize it completely now with no changes, right? That's one position. And many people see that as the default or what is actually going to happen. At the other end, you have some human rights organizations saying, shut the whole thing down. Uh, me, I would say that both of those things are unreasonable. Let's try to figure out something in the middle. So what does reform look like? Well, um, reform ideally takes a few aspects. One is to sort of look at the mission creep that potentially, not even through intention when this law is created, but just has happened by virtue of the loose restrictions that weren't really thought about at the time and find ways to rein those in to make sure this isn't being used as a law enforcement tool against Americans isn't being used to deprive privacy rights and due process rights for Americans that they're constitutionally entitled to. And second is sort of looking outward and saying, this is a really broad authority in terms of targeting, as we've talked about, you know, this doesn't have to be directed at bad guys. This doesn't have to be directed at national security threats. And in fact, can sometimes be directed at good people who are doing good things to try to promote democracy and promote their rights abroad. But those activities relate to U.S. foreign affairs. So I think the second avenue is sort of saying, how can we reasonably rein in who this is going after in terms of surveillance? Abroad? And you just look at it and you say, you know what, why don't, yes, just reauthorizing it is easy, but why don't we do at least some housekeeping? Why don't we define the terms better? Why don't we limit um, some, you know, applications of certain provisions? That's not as hard and that's more known to the legislators, they know, okay, we're just going to clean up the language. That for them is not as radical. So we're trying to message that in a way too. And of course, it's not. this is not happening in a vacuum. There is an expiration date here. There is going to be pressure applied internationally. So even though you can look at the politics and say, Donald Trump can get whatever he wants on this because there's a Senate and a House that are fully Republican controlled, that's not necessarily the case because... The law expires in December, at the end of the year, December 31st at midnight, and we saw that that was a major driving force behind the Section 215 reform. And you have 
the erosion of trust in American tech products, which does happen. And, and maybe, Ash, you can speak to some of the international implications here. But when people around the world look at our products and they say, these companies cannot possibly guarantee that I'm not being surveilled warrantlessly, that's how you had the safe harbor agreement between the US and Europe go down. It's been replaced by something called the privacy shield, which is basically the same thing and just and is, and is on shaky legal ground. And that might get struck down before the expiration date or after. But the specter of that going down and a trade war with Europe digitally and having data localization, countries forcing companies to store data about their citizens locally. These are all things that could influence the debate and apply pressure to national security hawks. Am I wrong? Definitely. And also, although Donald Trump wants to get along with everybody, almost no one wants to get along with Donald Trump. So a lot of countries, they wanted to cooperate with Obama. And Obama's surveillance and privacy policies were not amazing, but they were ready for a dialogue and they trusted Obama administration, whereas right now there's very little trust, especially between EU and America. A lot of other countries who are concerned about what's going to happen to, you know, all this data and all their private data, you know, America spies on diplomats. It spies on Angela Merkel, you, you can't really go wrong, like point out to anyone who makes any decisions in any country and America has a file on them. <laughs> so all these people are now concerned and trusting American tech companies who are under all of this law is the last thing they would want to do. And of course, maybe Apple and Google and Microsoft think that they're irreplaceable. But as we've seen in China, they pretty much are. Yeah. And I mean, the commercial internet is 20 years old. So let's not act like the companies that are on top today are going to be on top forever. And one way that you can have dramatic shifts in the marketplace, other countries taking advantage of the situation is if there is a lack of trust. And then there are other countries that could be more competitive by saying, look, we're not going to do the things that the NSA does and you can't trust American companies. Right. And I think also something to think about in terms of the expiration. Um, I don't think letting this law sunset is realistic expectation because there has been some value to it, unlike the bulk collection program. But um, this law, in terms of reauthorization, will have to go through the Judiciary Committees. We're in the House. They are, the vast majority of members are very sympathetic to reform, have expressed that loudly that they want to, you know, sort of plug some of the holes in this law and make it better. And on the Senate side, while it's a bit more split, you have um, Senator Leahy and Senator Lee, two of the biggest advocates for surveillance reform in the Senate. They're going to want to see some changes to this law, some improvements. So I think, once again, so the, the onus is going to be on those who would just sort of wave it aside and say, oh, just reauthorize it. We'll do this again in five years. They're going to be faced with some pretty common sense, simple reforms that are going to be put forward by these advocates when this first goes before the committees. And they're going to have to justify why those reasonable reforms shouldn't be what we should be checking off instead of a re straight reauthorization. Do you have any specific suggestions? I've heard you say a um, few things about use restrictions and how we can limit those. Do you want to talk about that? Right. So I, th I think the backdoor search loophole and use restrictions are probably the top tier of reforms just from um, my and the Constitution point. And when you say backdoor um, search loophole, is that when the NSA installs a vulnerability into a product? Or I no, mean, so for our listeners, explain what the backdoor search loophole is. The backdoor search loophole is um, a term, I think it was first coined by Senator Ron Wyden about um, Section 702. And the concept is 
um, as we've said, that this this law has to be targeted at foreigners. You know, you, you can't target an American. You can't target someone on U.S. soil. The law is actually very explicit about that, that you can't even engage in what they call reverse targeting, where you're saying, oh, let's listen to that foreigner because we know we're talking to these Americans. But once you start collecting, there's very few, if any, restrictions about how you can go about trying to grab um, and deliberately seek out Americans whose communications have been swept up. So the backdoor search loophole is this process by where you can query all the databases of 702 information for any specific American. You can be trying to deliberately seek out their communications, and that's um, completely permitted under the law as it is now. So in any other context, you would need to start an assessment, establish suspicion, start an investigation, go to a court, meet the probable cause standard, and then you can target them and deliberately seek out their communications. With 702, you go through this backdoor bizarro world investigative process where you can search for the American, grab their communications, and then start gathering your suspicion from that. And sticking with that, a major concern about reform here is that the government could just turn around and figure out another way to do this. So let's assume that Section 702 reform passes, and we get some of the things we talked about on the show today. We get transparency. We get some type of use restriction. We close the backdoor search loophole. There are other authorities under the law that government can use to surveil. And there's Executive Order 12333, which is an executive order, not a law passed by Congress. And is it is it a legitimate concern that even if the privacy community succeeds and the judiciary community and Senator Ron Wyden and all these people who want to see reform happen, we get there, that the government just turns around and says, well, we can do all the same stuff under 12333, and that's an executive order. So in order to get rid of it, you need Donald Trump to do something about it. It's, it's a legitimate concern, but I, I don't think it, it's a reason why we should be any less um, strident in trying to get Section 702 reform. First of all, um, Executive Order 12333 does give the president broad surveillance powers. It does not let the president compel a company to hand over private communications. That's a big difference. You can only do that through 702. So um, if we pass 702 reform um, and the government shifts more to 12333, the president can't just go up to Google and say, hey, me, this person's communications pursuant to 12333. That's not allowed. Um, Congress gets to set the limits, and they've set them by 702. Uh, another thing to think about is that some 702 reforms could talk about how these interact. Even though Executive Order 12333 is a largely executive authority, Congress does have a big say in terms of um, surveillance limits. That's what they do with 702. One reform that's been talked about is this idea of FISA exclusivity saying that if there's information that you could obtain from an American company through um, a court process like FISA, you can't sort of sneak around and use 12333 for that. So if we had a, excuse me, if we had a stricter, um, better constructed Section 702, we could also make a part of the law saying, and if you can use this thing, even if it's a little more inconvenient for you, even if it's a little more restricted, you can't just go over to 12333 and use that instead. I see your concern. You're, just, you know, Trump is issuing executive orders left and right, so he can't pass in every executive order and try to sweep this all up. But you're forgetting, maybe because you're not a lawyer, that there's this thing <laughs> called judicial branch that is supposed to keep uh, the executive branch in check, amongst other things. So uh, it, it's going to be an uphill battle, and we need whistleblowers, and we need to know what's happening behind closed doors. But it's a process that I believe in. You know, it's amazing that in doing 
now what over 160 episodes of this podcast that you beat Baron to the punch in terms of pointing out that the host is not a lawyer and might not know something for that reason. So well done. <laughs> I learned from the best. <laughs> so we'll leave Soon it. Soon you'll have to be using the phrase so-called lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll leave it there. Um, I guess have been Jake, excuse me, Jake Laparuk, Privacy Fellow at the Constitution Project, and Ash Kazarian, Legal Fellow at Tech Freedom. Thanks so much for joining, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. I promise kind of that the NSA won't read it. Uh, Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because we'll help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, Find us online at techfreedom.org.